Good, this morning, we're, what we're going to do is we're going to pick up where we uh, back up a little bit here and cover some of this ground again that we, we, that we already looked at a couple weeks ago. Last weekend, Lisa and I, um, I had a, a wedding up in Whistler, and they put us up. So, you know, I had to take advantage of the weekend and sneak away with my wife and leave my kids with their grandma. And so that was great. And so we're going to jump back into Matthew chapter 16 here and pick it up in verse 13. Let's read through to the end of the chapter. It says this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he, is, that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me, for you are for you are not setting your, your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray this morning. Father, we just thank you for your word. And we thank you for the great things that are declared to us in this chapter. And God, this morning, we just, uh, we surrender this time to you. We ask, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you just uh, have your way in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, you know what every one of us needs, what we need to hear. And right now, Jesus, we just uh, open our hearts to you. We, uh, we pray, God, that our hearts would be a place of good soil for the seed of your word. We pray, God, that the, that the things that we learn from your scripture would take root in our lives and that they would produce much fruit for you and for your kingdom. God, I just pray that uh, you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that you would just draw each and every person here to yourself this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we read, we read here that Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and when he got there, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they, and they gave these answers. That, you know, They said, some say John the Baptist, Others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. As I read this, I was just thinking about it. You know, 
walking from Galilee to Caesarea Philippi was a two-day journey. It's like 40 kilometers. And, uh, you know, sometimes you, you, read, you read your Bible, but I wonder about the details in between. You know, what's going on between the lines? You know, I wonder about the things that aren't recorded here. What was the conversation like as they traveled on foot with Jesus for two days? You know, what did they talk about? I would love to be just a, a fly on the wall, so to speak, and get an insight into Jesus with, with the crew hanging out and what they talked about on that journey. Well, among the things that the disciples discussed when they finally did arrive in Caesarea Philippi uh, was this question from their master, who do people say the son of man is? Who do, who do people say the son of man is? Now, the son of man is a title that Jesus referenced himself. He called himself over 80 times in the gospels, the son of man. It's his favorite title for himself, his favorite name that he would call himself. And in the scripture, that, that title, the son of man, is used to relate to us the humanity of Jesus that he shared in human nature, that though he was God, he was clothed in human flesh. And that is one of the messianic titles of Jesus, the son of man. Daniel called him that in Daniel chapter 7, that, that the Messiah would be known as the son of man. And so now this question, Jesus asked the twelve. Who do people say the son of man is? Um, and so, you know, what's Jesus' question? What's the opinion of the crowds? What's the word floating around out there about me? That's a good question because there was plenty of opinions floating around about Jesus. And so they began to recount some of them. Some say John the Baptist. You know John? John came on the scene. He came uh, preaching a message of repentance, preaching a message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, he told soldiers, uh, quit abusing your power and oppressing people. He told tax collectors, you know, quit extorting from the people and ripping them off. He told fathers, be good to your children. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and get your life together. And when Jesus' ministry began, it, it actually began with the same words. We read that in Matthew chapter 4, that he appeared on the scene from that time, and he began preaching that same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so some reasoned with this similar message between the two, this moral teaching that was being proclaimed about the kingdom, that Jesus must be John the Baptist returned from the dead. Others said, no, he, he's Elijah returned from heaven. Haven't you seen the miracles he's done? You think of Elijah and some of the miracles that he, he did in the Old Testament, calling down fire from heaven, multiplying food, raising the dead. Um, and Jesus had done many similar things. Lepers were cleansed, the blind see, food multiplied. He raised the dead as well. He must be Elijah. Others said, I think he's Jeremiah. There was traditions and rumors about the Messiah coming in the pattern of, of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. He was a, a man who was known for his compassion, a, a, a shepherd of Israel, a watcher of the people. His heart moved with compassion and he was concerned about the lost and he wept over them. And so Jesus must be Jeremiah, the weeping, compassionate prophet who cares for the lost sheep of Israel. Others said, no, he's got to be one of the prophets. Maybe he's the prophet that, Mo that Moses promised would come and would explain God's law. 
I mean, consider the things he said. His words are gracious. No one's ever spoken like him. He explains the things of God and the kingdom of God, and people are happy to listen to him. He must be the prophet or one of the prophets. You know, when you think about it, when you think about these opinions that were floating around about Jesus, it's true that actually often churches will, or ministries will build their philosophy of ministry on one of these identities or one of these ideas. There are those that reflect the message of John the Baptist, right? A message that preaches repentance, that focuses on the moral condition, the moral condition of, of the culture, the moral condition of the nation. Some are like Elijah, some ministries. They're into the signs and into the wonders and into the miracles. Others are a reflection of Jeremiah. They focus on the lost. They weep for the lost. They're compassionate for people in need. Others say, we'll be like the prophet that Moses promised would come. We'll spend our energy on explaining and, and teaching the word of God and we'll know doctrine better than anyone else. But it's interesting is, is Jesus asked this question and the disciples begin to give this answer that none of these opinions of the crowd got any reaction from Jesus. You know, I, I think about our culture today. There's, there's so many opinions about who Jesus is floating around out there. Oh, he's this, he's that, I think he's this. Everybody has good things to say about Jesus. But as we read this story here, what we, what we see is that Jesus was not interested in the wide opinion of the crowd. He responded to none of those suggestions. Instead, he, he narrowed the question and he inquired specifically of his disciples. And we read in verse 15 that he said this to them, but who do you say that I am? So the first question was really a setup, I think, to get to this next question. I mean, they've been with Jesus for a while. They just walked the 40 kilometers from the Galilee. In fact, these, these men have walked hundreds of kilometers with him, all, maybe thousands, all over the country for three years. They've seen healings. They've heard the teaching. They've uh, watched him raise the dead. They, they've seen the opposition that Jesus faced, and they've watched and heard how he responded to that and how he dealt with that. And so now Jesus says to them, but who do you say that I am? And that right there really is the most important question ever asked. The door to eternity swings on that question. Who do you say that Jesus is? We read in verse 16 that Simon Peter replied. He spoke up. Verse 16 says, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Peter, Peter's answer compared to the answers of the crowd is, is different in a sense. You know, so many of the crowd, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that, that people often formed their opinion on Jesus based on an emotional response as they saw him do things. But Peter was not responding emotionally to the question. Peter was careful here. He had thoroughly thought through his conclusion and there was a supernatural revelation for him as he confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And I think about Jesus and what Jesus is looking for from you and I. You know, many 
people in an emotional moment make a confession of, of Christ in that moment of intense feeling. There's no foundation really upon which they've made that confession. They just, they just make it. And, you know, sometimes it can be they're on fire for a little bit and hook into a church or get excited about the Lord and then the flame just seems to fizzle out. Jesus is looking for men and women who will come to a rational, intellectual conclusion about who he is that's based on a spiritual revelation. And what we read here is that that Peter, we're going to see, had, had come to this conclusion because of all the things that he had seen, but also because the way the Spirit of God had worked upon his life to reveal Christ to him. And Jesus is listening for people that have concluded in their hearts and in their minds, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And I'm not basing that idea on the fact that, oh, I don't know, I feel better, better physically or, you know, I'm superstitious or I've gone about the religious exercises or I'm feeling sentimental or my emotions have stirred this and and I'm going to make this confession. No, Jesus is looking for people who have had their hearts spiritually touched by the Lord and their minds come to a rational conclusion that they come to that place, I confess that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. See, you and I have to be able to say, I have concluded that Jesus really is who he claimed to be. We, we need to be able to say that from our own hearts and our own lives and our own conclusions, not, not our parents, not this influence, not that influence. And Peter came to that place where he declared, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and essentially, you know, we, we need to come to that place where we make that same declaration and say, Jesus, I'm giving you my life wholly, completely surrendered totally to you. You think about Peter. Uh, Peter was, as a Hebrew, had been raised with a, a messianic expectation in his life. That expectation was part of the fiber of his being and, and his personality and is part of the fiber of his upbringing and his religion and the way that his parents had nurtured him. And there was an anticipation amongst the Hebrew Jewish people looking for the coming of the Messiah. And so Jesus called himself the son of man. And Peter concluded, you are the Christ, the son of God. That is, you are the fulfiller, Jesus. If you wanted me to ask, if you're going to ask me who I think you are, you are the fulfiller of all my expectation. You are the one through, all, through whom all my hopes are realized. You are the dawn of a new day and a new era. All the writings of the prophets, all the Psalms look, look to you and spoke of you and spoke of your coming. As a Hebrew, Peter, I think, thought this, that our eyes have always looked forward to your coming and we have been waiting and watching for you. And I confess, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's a great picture. We talked a couple weeks ago about just the geography of of Caesarea Philippi a little bit, that it was a, an idolatrous place, that they were literally standing in the place that was considered the very gates of hell amongst the pagan people. And in the midst of those 
idolatrous places and the ruins that were there. Here, a, a fisherman, a, a common blue-collar guy, a son of the nation, looked into the face of Jesus, whom he had heard teach and whom he had listened to preach for nearly three years, and he confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're more than John. John was your forerunner. You're more than Elijah who, who foretold your coming. You're, you're more than Jeremiah who was a shepherd of the nation. You are the one to whom all of those, those, those men looked. And so son of man, yes, yes, Jesus, you are the son of man. You share in my humanity. But you are also the Christ, the son of the living God. See, when Peter said, you are the Christ, he, he put Jesus on the throne of Israel as the Lord's prophet, as the Lord's priest, as the Lord's king. When he confessed, you are the son of the living God, he put Jesus not just on the throne of Israel, but on the throne of the universe, of all the universe. And when we think about Peter's confession, this confession of faith that Peter made, this confession is really, it's like the I don't know what you call it, the cardinal creed of the church. This is the chief teaching of the church. This is like the doctrine of all doctrines, that there's nothing else more important than this declaration. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is truly man and Jesus is truly God. And so in reaction... As Peter makes this confession, Jesus responds to him and he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Uh, Jesus instantly acknowledges Peter's confession of faith and, and the source of its inspiration. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven. He calls him Simon Bar-Jonah. That means Simon, son of Jonah. And Jesus said this to illustrate how true Peter's confession is. Yes, you are Simon, son of Jonah, and I am Jesus, son of God. Verse 18 says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You are Peter. You are, you are Petros, which means little rock, piece of rock, a fragment of rock. And on this rock, Petra, meaning great rock, meaning the essential rock, the, a big rock, I will build my church. You know, when you cruise throughout the pages of Scripture, all throughout um, the Scripture, the symbolism of the rock, the picture of the rock is never a picture of man, but of God. A symbol of deity and Jesus took this well-understood Hebrew concept of the rock representing deity and declared, on this rock, I will build my church. It's, it's not Peter upon which the church is built, but it's upon God himself, upon the confession of faith. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. You know, when the Lord says, you're, you're Peter, Petros, he's, he's saying this, you're a man. And anyone can move you. But the faith you've expressed in, in me, when you declared you are the Christ, son of the living God, that, that is like a rock that is not movable, but immovable. 
upon that confession of faith, upon that immovable confession of faith, I will build my church, Jesus says. What's to be built? The church. It's the first time the church has ever been mentioned in the scriptures here. The very first time. Something new that has never been revealed before. Something Jesus called my church. It's the Greek word ecclesia. And the Hebrews used that word to describe a, a selected people, a people who were a theocracy, ruled by God. They were governed by God rather than the politics and, of men and human kings. The Greeks used that word to describe an assembly of free people who would gather, people that are free, like a town meeting. And, and in Greek culture, no slave could come and be a part of that gathering of such a member of that group. And so there's a, this Hebrew concept and this Greek concept, but Jesus used the word ecclesia to describe an assembly of his own people, free people, a people that are under the theocracy of God, his own believing people, those who had made the great confession of faith. I read this great quote and I wanted to read it to you this morning from, from J.C. Ryle. He said this, the church, which Je- the church which Jesus promises to build upon a rock is the blessed company of all faithful people. It is not the visible church of any one nation or country or place. It is the whole body of believers of every age and tongue and people. It is a church composed of all who are washed in the blood of Christ, clothed in Christ's righteousness, renewed by Christ's spirit, joined to Christ by faith and epistles of Christ in life. It is a church of which every member is baptized with the Holy Ghost and is really and truly holy. It is a church which is one body, All who belong to it are of one heart and one mind, holding the same truths and believing the same doctrines as necessary to salvation. It is a church that only has one head, and that head is Jesus. He is the head of the body. You know, when you think about the word church, it's like a word that's, I think, commonly misunderstood amongst the culture, even amongst us this morning. The church is not a place. You know, the church is not a building. The church is a people who share a common confession of faith. You are the Christ, son of the living God. The church is not a place where we go. The church is not something we do. The church is something we are. We are the church. You know, often people ask you questions like, hey, you know, what church do you go to? What denomination do you belong to? And they lose sight that, that there is only one church. Like truly, there is only one church. And outside of that church, there is no salvation because the true church is built on Jesus Christ. He is the foundation, the confession of faith. You are the Christ, son of the living of God. And there is no salvation. There is no membership in church amongst God's assembly without that confession of faith. And so, you know, where a church gathers makes no difference. You know, it could be a nightclub, an old nightclub, a school, a home. You know, I think about our home groups. Sometimes I get lost in what to call them. We call them koinonia. But in a lot of ways, they're like a little church. It's the church coming together. You know, you can meet, yeah, a school, a home, an old nightclub, or something that fits your traditional idea of where a church should gather 
But what matters is one thing. Only one thing matters no matter where God's people gather. And is this confession of faith. You're the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build my church. You know, I just think about Jesus. I take great hope in that. That the church belongs to Jesus. It belongs to him. It is his church. And through the Holy Spirit, he is building his church. He's been building it for hundreds of years. Thousands of years. And Jesus says this, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know, in the scripture, uh, gates represent power. They represent authority. Uh, the gates were the place where, where business transactions happened, where the rulers um, gave their decisions and uh, conducted their leadership. And the gates of hell or the gates of Hades represent that place of, the, of power, uh, the power of Satan, the, the power of death. And by his death and resurrection, uh, Jesus conquered death. The scripture says he, could, he shared in our humanity so that he might free those who were held in slavery to the fear of death. Essentially, Jesus would storm the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, and deliver those who were held in, in fear of slavery, in slavery to fear of, of, sorry, held in slavery to fear and to death. And Jesus said this. I hey, kids. Shh, thanks. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The keys to the kingdom. That's what Jesus said to Peter. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. Keys always represent authority. They represent, you know, uh, power. We use keys to unlock things. You know, in the workplace when you begin to you know, grow in your position at work, they say, here, you got keys. Here's the alarm code. Keys are authority. Keys are power. And what is the power that Jesus gives to his disciples that he gives to Peter and ultimately is given to you and I as well? It's the power to proclaim the truth of forgiveness, the power to proclaim the truth of the gospel, to declare you are the Christ, son of the living God. What Jesus is specifically saying, that the, that the keys to the kingdom meant authority to unlock the truth of God. Because Peter was the first to make the confession of faith, he was given a special blessing. It was this, that Peter was given the privilege of opening the door of faith to the Jews, Acts chapter 2. He was given the privilege of opening the door of faith to the Samaritans, Acts chapter 8. He was given the permission of the authority of, of the privilege of opening the door uh, for the Gentiles, Acts chapter 10. And we continue with that authority given to Peter. We, we unlock the truth about who Jesus is for people. Jesus said, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That, that binding and loosing is not a picture. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. It's not a picture of heaven doing our will. You know, it's like, yeah, sweet. Now heaven's going to do whatever I want. It's rather portrays this idea of us being in harmony with heaven. It's not, here are some keys. Do whatever you want, you know. I'll make it happen on your behalf. No, we're, as we bind and loose are to do so accordingly, accordingly as the pattern is set in heaven. We're to be in harmony with Jesus. 
in harmony with heaven. Verse 20 says, Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Verse 21, Wasn't yet time, not yet time for people to know there was work to be done yet. Verse 21, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Verse 21 begins with these words, from that time, or from, from that time. And this verse really marks a major division in the gospel of Matthew and the book of Matthew and its message. Up to this point, the theme from Jesus has been this, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's, in fact, if you were to flip, you might want to mark this in your Bible. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it says, From that time, Jesus began to declare, Repent for the kingdom of heaven at hand. Now Matthew tells us, From that time, uh, Jesus begins to make known to his disciples these things about his death and his resurrection and the things that he would suffer. And Matthew's purpose all throughout uh, his gospel is to introduce to us the message of the kingdom. But from here on in, the focus will be the necessity of the cross. And Jesus is going to educate his disciples regarding the inevitable and the inescapable plan of God that he must go to the cross and he must die for the sins of mankind and must be raised from the dead. And that word must in verse, 20 word, verse 21 is a key word. Jesus is very deliberate in communicating uh, the details of what will happen. Five times, Matthew says, end. He said this, end, 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 end. These things all must happen. They have to happen. And I think about Peter, you know, he's hearing this. Just made this great declaration of his faith. You are the Christ, son of the living God. He had wholeheartedly responded to the truth about Jesus and who he was. You're the Christ. But the truth about the cross was something totally new to Peter. This was, this was out of left field. Something altogether different from anything else that he had heard Jesus talk about in all the ministry that had happened up to this point in time. And so Peter, who, who looked like a hero when it came to confess, being the first to confess his faith in Christ Jesus, is going to fall flat on his face here when he hears about the necessity of the cross and the impending death of Jesus. Verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Peter, at this point in time, could not yet see. I mean, we, we have the privilege, right, of the whole scripture and the whole story, but at this point in time, Peter could not see the full purpose of Jesus coming into the world. And, you know, I think about this. This should teach us that, you know, even the best men are infallible. Peter the first, ahead of anyone in making a confession of faith, here is totally in the wrong. He even gets called Satan. Don't you love that? Jesus calls him Satan. Uh, you're a hindrance to me. And, and this should remind us, you know, that even the best men are 
fallible. The people who can serve God incredibly one day and make great declarations of faith and proclaim the gospel clearly the next day can fall flat on their faces. And Jesus says this, you are a hindrance to me. You're a stumbling block. The Greek word is your scandalon. You're scandalous to me. A stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Remember, you're, you're Peter, Petros. And now Jesus says, you're, you're a rock of offense, Satan. A rock lying in the path is going to trip me up and try to hinder God's plan. And when we read that, it says Jesus just turned right away, turned away from him. He turned his back on Peter, turned away from him. And as Peter heard this, this message from Jesus, as, as Jesus began to declare the things that were going to happen, all Peter heard was this, Jesus is going to die. He failed to hear and he failed to understand that Jesus also said that he must rise from the dead on the third day. He told him that right straight out. It's amazing. I mean, we're going to see this more and more as we go through the gospel of Matthew, just how clearly Jesus laid out everything that would happen to his disciples. And yet they missed it. You know, as the church, there's two things we see here that we have to cling to. One is the identity of Jesus, son of man, son of God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. We cling to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. That is his identity. But the second thing that the church must always cling to is the cross. The message of the cross. And the cross is always offensive to a natural man. The, the natural man. And the problem, as Jesus pointed out, was that Peter was setting his mind on the things of men rather than the things of God. You see that in verse uh, 23, that there's two things that a person can set their mind on. You can set your mind on the things of God or you can set your mind on the things of men. And the things of God tell us that the cross was not a defeat, contrary to Peter's singing, the, the cross was not a Defeat, but the cross was the victory of God. That Jesus' death was Jesus' victory over sin and over death. And that victory culminated in the fact that he would be raised from the dead. He said, it's going to happen. It has to happen. I'll be rejected. I will suffer. I will go to the cross. I will die and I will be raised from the dead. And the cross and my resurrection is the victory of God. The things of men that Jesus referred to, refers to really involves, you know, living the self-seeking life. The kind of living that shuns the cross, that says, no, that's uncomfortable. I don't like that. That kind of living ends in destruction. It's nearsightedness. It's living only with the concept of what's immediately in front of you rather than living for eternity. You know, as you think about this, the, the, the question has to come for us is what are, you, what are you living for? The things of man or the things of God? And the cross, the cross was a must. But so was the resurrection. He must be raised. And Peter tried to stand in opposition to that. But Jesus, as God, had his mind set on the things of God. The scripture tells us elsewhere that for the joy that was set before him, 
He endured the cross and he scorned its shame. Peter only saw the pain. He only saw the pain of the process. He only viewed what Jesus said in terms of his own loss. He would lose Jesus if Jesus died in Jerusalem. And I would say this, really, in in this moment, in the midst of this thing, Peter only has himself in view. It's entirely selfish as he stands against Jesus. But Jesus, being the God-centered man, being the man who had set his mind on the things of God, had eternity in view. He had the plans of God in view. He considered what God was doing. You know, the scripture tells us actually this, that the cross is a stumbling block. That the cross uh, stumbles the man who has his mind set on the things of man. And I think about it, you know, it, it is possible for us to become stumbling stones for others, just like Peter was. Here's the truth that the church must never forget. We, the church, must never forget. The kingdom of God cannot be built without the cross. Without Jesus suffering for the sin of mankind, any suggestion that the kingdom can come without the cross, you know, without blood, without without suffering, without the agony of death, is a hindrance to the message of Jesus Christ. The church can never depart from the message of the cross. And and we see it. We, We see churches that depart from the message of the cross and we Watch what happens to their ministry and and, and to the life. You know, the Bible says that there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And Jesus shed his blood for the sins of mankind. He must die. He must suffer. He must bleed. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And the scripture says, and by his stripes, we are healed. And the truth is this, is that there is nothing soft and there is nothing sweet about what it cost for our salvation. Jesus had to die. And it's with these things, I think, in view that Jesus begins to state to his his disciples the terms of what it means to follow him. He says this in verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You know, I think about the 12, they're there with Jesus and I think they all wanted to follow Jesus. They all loved him. They all had affection for him. But they weren't the ones setting the definition of what it meant to follow him. Jesus was setting the definition. And to be a disciple means this. It means to discipline yourself in the pattern of someone else. The the word disciple actually really has two primary meanings. It means this. It means follower and learner. It's a relationship where you adhere and you devote yourself to Jesus. I'm going to follow your pattern the pattern of your life and the pattern of your teaching. It's a relationship where you learn, where you, where you gain and you acquire knowledge and you implement it into your life and you are taught by Jesus and taught by the Spirit of God. And so Jesus says here that the, these are the first requirements of 
discipleship. He expresses them in three conditions. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. I, I read that. They're, they're uncomfortable, aren't they? Deny yourself. Think about Peter. About Peter. Wait, Jesus, I just got given the keys to the kingdom. Deny myself. I mean, they did not, and, and sometimes we do not understand that true Christians must cooperate with the purposes of God, whatever it might be. Whatever God might have for you. Deny yourself means a surrendered life. It means giving up my life, laying down my plans, surrendering control of my life to Jesus. It means giving yourself wholly to him. And, and that, that's a, that right there, deny yourself is actually the secret to happiness in life. To deny yourself and to live surrendered to Jesus. To loyally follow him wherever he would lead. He says, take up your cross. And we say this, the, the flesh must be crucified, you know? Daily, the, the flesh must be crucified. The devil must be resisted. Uh, the world must be overcome. Take up your cross. That means identify your life with Christ and his resurrection and his shame and his suffering and his death and his cross. To acknowledge that your, your spiritual life and the reality of the fact that you've been born again has happened through identifying yourself with Jesus Christ, with his death, burial, and resurrection. It means identifying your life with Jesus even to the point of suffering if that's where he happens to take you. And so to take up your cross is something you choose to do. A determination that no matter what, You'll stand, where, you'll stand for Jesus in the message of the cross. He says, follow me. I think about that. When I, when I read that, I, I just have that picture of a, of a shepherd in my mind. And Jesus is the shepherd of your soul. He says, follow me. I'll care for you. The scripture says that he's the, the good shepherd. Psalm 23 says that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus said, follow me. I'm the good shepherd. And then he says this in verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, I, I'm reminded of the story of Jim Elliot. Sure, many of you are familiar with Jim. Jim has worked with Missions Aviation Fellowship that Amy and Ben work with. And uh, <clears throat> he was part of an original outreach through that ministry to, uh, sorry, he didn't work directly for them, but he traveled with them. And he was part of an, an outreach that 
was reaching a, a, a tribal people, the Akas in Ecuador. And Jim, along with three other men, uh, were killed as they went to preach the gospel and to build relationship with these um, with this tribe that had never been reached or had contact with the outside world. And Jim wrote this in his, he's famous for writing this in his journal. He said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. See, Jim knew the reality that if you lose your life for the sake of Jesus, you gain everything. No one can take that. No one can you, you will get, when you give your life to Jesus, you gain what cannot be lost. Jesus actually said this in verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You know, when you think about it, there's, there's nothing as precious, nothing as valuable as a person's soul. It's been said that the first question that comes to the soul is this choice, heaven or hell. And then when that question is settled in favor of heaven, the second question that comes to the soul is this, heaven or earth. And when I think about this, the value of a soul, it's, it's a searching question for us. It, it should search us. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? I mean, what, what is the value that you put on a soul? There's nothing a man can buy that can compare to the value of a soul. The world and everything this world contains is temporary. Those who belong to this world know that. They fear it. They look at the earth and say, it's temporary. It's void. It, it, it's it's going in a direction that does not look good. It's fading. It's perishing. The scripture says it's passing away, but there's something that is eternal. Your soul. And I think in the midst of our culture, we're in this constant battle because we have so much affluence, so much wealth, so much riches. We acquire things and we search out the riches of this world and we don't take the proper care to surrender our soul and nourish that which is eternal and give it to the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we chasing earth over heaven? Are we chasing the temporary over that which is eternal? Jesus said this in verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. You know, I think about this promise. Jesus said, the Son of Man is going to come. We need to live with that as a value of our lives, an identifying factor with this, this voraciousness that we hold to the truth, Jesus is coming again. And the promise here is this, is that if you take up your cross and you follow Jesus and you keep in mind the fact that Jesus is coming, then you will be rewarded in the age to come. 
And I think about this age, you know, the, the promise here from Jesus is this, that there is a cross for the Christian in this age. But this present age, these, this time in which we live is going to come to an end and there will be a crown in the next age. Jesus is coming again. He's coming again. He's coming in his glory. He says, I'm going to come. The Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father. Man, I wonder what that looks like. The Son of Man coming in the glory of the Father, coming with the angels, coming with the host of heaven, coming to reward, coming to reign, coming to rule. And so his challenge to his disciples is the same challenge to you and I. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, knowing that I will come, and in that day, you will be rewarded. And then the last verse of our chapter, it says this, Truly, I say to you, that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Wow, maybe we wonder, what, what is with this verse? Because all of these disciples died. How, how could Jesus say, some are standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom? This, this verse should almost be attached to the next chapter. We're going to get into it next week. And we're going to see how some of those standing there with Jesus saw the Son of Man in all of his glory and in the glory of his kingdom. You know, as I think about this chapter this morning, just a few, few takeaways I want to leave us with from the text. What is the master of your life? Who is the master of your life? To what have you yielded the control of your life? I want to ask you that and encourage you to, to, search, to search your heart and put your heart, put your energy into the things of the kingdom. Put your desires there. And that challenge of Jesus that was given to the disciples remains true for you and I. Deny yourselves, pick up your cross, and follow me. It's, I think it's in Luke's gospel where it actually says, pick up your cross daily and follow me. And the decision to, to follow Jesus, to, to be identified with, with the cross and with the resurrection truly is that. It is a daily decision. We choose this day whom we will serve. And so this morning, the application is real simple. To what or to whom have you yielded the control of your life? Are you living for the things of this earth? or for the things of eternity. Let's pray this morning and invite the worship team to come. Would you guys stand with me?